This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Madison Connaughton, editor of the Saturday Paper, joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, Sean Walker came into the studio. Sean is The Guardian's correspondent for Central and Eastern Europe. Previously, he was based in Russia as the correspondent there for over 10 years. He joined me to talk about his forthcoming lecture, The Importance of History, Reflections from a Foreign Correspondent. We also discussed his book, The Long Hangover, Putin's New Russia and the Ghosts of the Past. Then, finally, film director Janine Hosking joined me to talk about her latest documentary, The Eulogy. The Eulogy is about the life and untimely death of one of the greatest pianists in the world, Australian Geoffrey Tozer. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM, 102.7 FM on your dial. You could be streaming it online or on your app, which is also fabulous. Welcome to you wherever you are in Australia or the world. Now we're going to be talking about federal politics, Australian politics, and um, there's so much to discuss. As I said, we are in the early days of Senate estimates, so some of the kind of more exciting news hasn't yet come, but no doubt there will be some interesting um, things that we discover through the estimates process. It's always a very important time for the um, government, the public service and um, ministers to front up and answer questions from senators and um, to find out where projects are, how much they've cost, all those kind of nitty gritties. And uh, there's much more that has been happening in the past week. So I'm great, greatly excited to welcome Madison Connaughton, who is the editor of the Saturday paper. Hi there, Madison. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's I have to, to have you back. Do um, a radio, uh, what I'm sure is a radio faux pas, and give my friend Ed a shout out because <laughs> I ran into him as I was walking into the studio and he was very excited. He's a fan of the show. And oh. He was very excited that he knew someone that was coming on. So. That's so cool. <laughs> Hi there, Ed. I hope you're getting to work on time because he yes. was running late, it seemed. Oh, really? What are we now? Oh, yeah, well, it's. Yeah, 9.25. When when does work start? I don't know. He'll have to call in and let us yeah, know. So. Yeah, let me know. <laughs> 9 to Ed. Um, or you could just tweet me, which I think would probably get to me faster in most circumstances, which is a sign of the times. Now, Madison, there's so much happening. Probably what I'd like to just start off with is the thing that was most visible yesterday, which was if anyone actually uses or reads a print newspaper on a weekday, it was quite obvious um, that every page of the front page of every newspaper um, was blacked out, kind of like redacted with black texture. Um, and obviously the front, real front page was underneath, but it was a statement from the media and also, I guess, a point of um, a political point and a campaigning moment for the media to say, well, actually, government needs to be transparent and also um, whistleblowing should not be a crime and that we need to be vigilant about the way that um, government and the opposition uh, are continually voting in laws, passing laws that certainly reduce our privacy and also the freedom of the press. Um, what from your perspective as an editor of a newspaper, um, was that kind of show of solidarity? Because we've seen some people were quite critical saying, oh, well, you know, congrats, it's all about you. And some people thought maybe journalists were being a little bit too um, 
precious. It's about them and their jobs and making life easier for them. But they would say they were actually making a really important uh, political point that's become quite urgent. What What do you think? Yeah, well, I think it is a huge statement for all of the major newspapers in the country to black out their front pages. Um, you know, that just the potential loss of advertising revenue there is significant. So, kind of, I guess what the main statement would be is that we're, you know, risking things financially in order to make this statement. Um, the Right to Know campaign has been sort of building over the, or I mean, building over the long term, but I guess it was really catalyzed by those two Senate inquiries. So Right to Know is kind of a coalition um, of media organisations and also the MEAA, which is the journalist union. Um, and they have put in joint submissions to both Senate inquiries about press freedom. So there's been two um, and they're, they're ongoing. I don't believe either of them has reported yet. Um, and they were very strongly worded statements and had really strong things to say about whistleblowers um, and a number of other things in press freedom. Um, but I guess Right to Know had the sense that they needed to step up their campaign. Just participating mm-hmm. in the Senate inquiry process wasn't enough. Um, I think that there's a lot of frustration within the media that uh, these issues are not being listened to by the government, that there's been this build-up of national security legislation that impedes journalism. There's been a gutting of the freedom of information um, sector of the government, which I think is something that perhaps is talked about in this campaign, but not as much as the other things, but is really, really damaging to journalism um, and to the public's you know, right to know, to use mm. the campaign line, um, but also the whistleblower protections as well, which are really limited in Australia. And we're seeing three quite high-profile whistleblowers being um, pursued now by le- with legal action over um, giving information to media outlets, which is um, f- over the Afghan files, Bernard Kaleri, who is the um, lawyer for Witness K, uh, and also the ATO whistleblower as well, who's mm. facing, I think, many, many decades in prison over leaking to the ABC. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly, yes, exactly. And we're, it's interesting how we look at whistleblowers because I think – most Australians would say if they followed all the proper channels and they weren't being listened to, they didn't have much choice. Um, And perhaps they were doing a public service to shining a light on what they thought was inappropriate conduct of some kind and that needed to be given sunshine and sunlight. Um, And then we're looking at whistleblowing in America with Donald Trump. And funnily enough, in this instance, many people are kind of hailing the whistleblower and then there's actually more than one now. Um, And I mean, obviously in the past, Edward Snowden hasn't necessarily been hailed as some great hero of America. Um, But what are your thoughts on how, in some cases, in other countries, whistleblowers are actively protected? Because a lot of people are saying, well, Donald Trump said, I want to meet this whistleblower and talk to him. And who is he? Incredible Trump impression. I know, with my hand gestures, which no one can see on radio. Um, Yeah. And so, I mean... Every, everyone else, the Congress people, and are saying, no, of course we wouldn't. We have, you know, you have to actively protect their identity. They've done something important for their country. What's the difference between Australia and America or those two, our situations at the moment? 
Yeah, well, I guess the the key thing is that the the whistleblower in the US didn't go to the media, which I I mean I think it's a complicated thing to talk mm. through, but you know, what is the public's um, relationship to the media? How much trust is there? Is there an antipathy there? And and does going to the media feel like you've sort of crossed some sort of line? I do believe within some segments of the public that is the sense. Mm. So because the whistleblower in the Trump White House um, only went through internal processes and then it leaked that there was this whistleblower report, uh, I think that it's a little neater there. And doesn't feel like there's been some sort of bound crossed. I also yeah. think that Trump has emerged as this sort of um, really egregious figure to to all sides of politics. So I think, you know, he is so divisive that that his base is 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 you know thirty percent or whatever it is of the voting public. So it's quite small. Mm. Um, in Australia, I think it's more complicated because, I mean. These these whistleblowers have allegedly gone to the media. It crosses bounds for some people in the public. But I think when you look at what they've leaked about, it is so incredibly important for the public to know about if you just go through them. So mm. Witness K uh, allegedly leaked to um, the media about Australia wiretapping uh, the East Timorese at the time, Timor-Leste now, to get an upper hand in negotiations over oil and gas treaties. We, we, it is alleged that we tapped uh, a foreign government in order to get an upper hand in a in a um, in a treaty. That that is a really important thing for the public to know. If you look at the ATO whistleblower, that was really really um, terrible uh, allegations of of how the ATO was acting, especially towards small business owners and trying to reclaim debts. And then if you look at the Afghan files, allegations that Australian um, troops committed war crimes while stationed in Afghanistan. So those are three incredibly important stories and things that that do need to be talked about publicly Mm. um, and do need to be addressed. And I think that the concern of the whistleblowers was that if they didn't go public, nothing would change and it would just happen again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, I don't think I, well, I'm not going to argue with that because those issues, if you look at them, whatever, you know, they've been, they haven't yet been proved or disproved. But I think, yeah, it is those types of issues are things that the public should know that the ABC, for example, and John Lyons has argued are just like, you know, critical to Australia, the Australian public's confidence in their military or government departments. Um, and that's kind of like an unspoken thing that exists in society that trust of we know that you're going to be doing the right thing on our behalf do you think that that um you know is something that the media is meant to be doing that we perhaps don't appreciate enough is like the maintaining of trust because not not everyone trusts the media but the media is meant to hold many organizations or institutions to account Mm. um do I think that the media isn't doing a good enough job at it or doing enough job, good enough job communicating that they're Yeah, doing communicating it. their role because I feel like a lot of people are so jaded about the media and about politics in general that they probably get a lot of pushback and particularly the you know fourth estate um, in inverted commas and there's just been so much uh, controversy around you know, this idea of enforced balance and whether people are, um, you know, reporting climate change in a way that is helpful Mm. to society you know there's a lot of criticism of the media um and a lot of it is warranted but what are your thoughts on how the media kind of communicates their 
role to the public or whether they do in fact do that at all. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is what the Right to Know campaign is trying to do. It's probably the most um, public facing thing that the media has done in a while. I mean, each individual Mm. media company runs its own ads and does campaigns from time to time trying to, you know, define who they are and and what what their brand is. But I think this is probably the most public-facing communications campaign that um, major media organisations have run, especially all as a coalition. So it'll be Mm. interesting to see whether it does have an impact. The thing that really strikes me about this current situation and I guess the three really high profile whistleblower stories that are going on at the moment is that they aren't that media that is criticised or they aren't fluff, they aren't um, hot air, they aren't any of those things that the media often gets criticism for. They are the most important investigative journalism Mm. so that they potentially get caught up with the rest of of the criticism is I think the concern and something maybe the media could do a better job of is is really defining, you know, this is the core work that we are meant to do. The other things we do them that you know, they're potentially entertainment or they mm. make money or they do other things, but they are so we can do this core function, which is investigative journalism that holds power to account. Um, and I think it is concerning that, you know, these three very important stories are the ones that are being targeted um, potentially by legal action. Mm, yeah, it is scary. And, yeah, it's, there's all that debate around whether um, news organisations put enough money into investigative journalism as well. Um, but it certainly is quite impressive that we do have this level of investigative journalism, certainly in the ABC as well. Um, Let's head into some of the other federal politics elements um, that are going on in the past week, but also at the moment. Um, First up, I wanted to raise this issue, which kind of really hit the front page in a sense um, around Australia's economy and everyone's freaking out apparently about whether Australia's economy is robust in the face of quote-unquote global headwinds, which really, for anyone who's wondering what the hell that means, is just, you know, global politics, whether Donald Trump says something and, you know, the American economy or share market goes up or down and that affects us, or the China and uh, America trade war or Brexit or all these other elements, um, the export-import market. So there are so many things that are beyond our control, but there are also many things that are within the government's control in terms of um, economic levers. And as you and I have discussed, the Reserve Bank governor has said that they have a very limited scope of what they can do with the interest rates and monetary levers, and they have really for more than once told the government or suggested in strong terms that the government might want to consider investing in infrastructure, doing some kind of extra stimulatory spending that would kind of boost the economy and keep it humming um, because we've now seen the International Monetary Fund downgrade Australia's growth forecasts and also give very, very strong advice that they should do the same thing. So, I mean, unfortunately, stimulation and spending at the moment seems to be um, anathema to the coalition government and their kind of approach to governing. What are your thoughts on this debate now that's kind of been thrown up um, in the face of economic slowdown? 
Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say is that in that IMF um, release, Australia was a real outlier. We were were downgraded twice the global average. So I think that that is really significant because there is sort of a global slowdown going on, those headwinds. (laughs) But the fact that we are an outlier in that I think is really concerning and uh, I think there was. I think it was Catherine Murphy in the Guardian had a great piece about um, uh, Josh Frydenberg not using the word stimulus in an entire speech about fiscal management um, last week, and it does seem like that word is is on the on the banned list. Yeah, um, on the on the talking points banned list. But I mean, the other thing to look at as well is I guess we are trying to hold the same line that we held during the global financial crisis, right? If Australia has a surplus, it means that we have money to spend if things go badly. And it's a very risk-averse strategy. Mm. But I think that when you look at how much the global economy has changed since the GFC, how much the Australian economy has changed, how much more integrated we are into the world economy, we aren't that isolated country that can kind of just hold off and hope that China still would like as much of our resource exports. Um, And I think that that's a, you know, it is a a risky move to play. I guess the government's hope would be that if there is some sort of global downturn, uh, Australia will have a surplus to spend and China's economy will remain fairly strong and they will still want our resource exports. That's kind of the game that they're playing. But If you look at Australia's economy, I mean, there was that research from Harvard that came out, I think a few weeks ago, which which said that Australia's economy basically resembles a a developing country's economy. We are incredibly reliant on our resources. Um, We dig things up, we ship them out, we have no value Mm. add, we have no manufacturing, we really haven't built anything in Australia where we can... um, take you know whatever our primary products are and make them into something a little bit more expensive and then ship them off which is what a lot of developed economies do so we've put ourselves in a situation where we have a really high um, sort of uh, GDP per capita we're a very wealthy country in that sense but we have a very underdeveloped economy and we are incredibly reliant on two superpowers who are fighting with each other so it's a very dangerous position to be in Mm -hmm. and I think that you know, there are a lot of economists that are suggesting that we should be more proactive and we should be diversifying our economy so that if things do go wrong, if China does not want as much of our resource exports, that that doesn't tank our economy. It's so funny that we're having this conversation because I feel like I've had it on and off for about 10 years. (laughs) You know, like this isn't new. I don't think uh, it's so important what you're saying, like that Australia is still reliant on resources. Like you would think that there was this kind of discussion maybe three years ago about, oh, well, is the mining boom over? I don't know. Are we in a downturn of the mining boom or is this the end? Um, And it's funny that we were having that conversation. Now, I guess the boom, so to speak, of like extreme wealth isn't necessarily there. And we're kind of going, what else is there that we've got? Mm, I don't know. And we've seen a a very slow defunding of the CSIRO and research and development. We are really, really far behind compared to other OECD countries on R&D spending. So what would be the solution or what's the solution that Australian governments have been ignoring? Because it's clear that, you know, this issue has not kind of just risen out of the blue and we're all really surprised and worried. Yeah. I mean, that same Harvard research, it sort of looks at an economic complexity every single year. 
Australia has actually fallen significantly down the list over the last decade. So I think we were in the in the 60s and now we're 93rd in the world mm. in terms of economic complexity. So I, I think that it's actually gone backwards, which is the really interesting thing. Yeah. Um, I guess, I mean, it wouldn't be particularly like um, groundbreaking to say that (laughs) I mean I I think it was Ross Garneau during the election said that we could become a renewable superpower we have a lot of sun we have a lot of wind we have a lot of you know potential geothermic power I I think that uh, you know there's there's talk about creating some sort of pipeline to export renewable energy up into Southeast Asia create new economies for Australia um and that, I mean, that does sound like a, a good idea. It seems like energy, affordable green energy is going to be a growth market. So mm. I think it's it's a situation where how do you make that politically pal- palatable for a government who has, you know, really staked, staked its claim on um, green energy or renewable energy um, and I guess is really invested in Snowy 2.0 and then beyond that not too much else. Yeah, well, it's funny because Snowy 2.0 is really a drop in the ocean in terms of what Australia needs to do to diversify and if it so decided, leave coal um, slowly or quickly. I mean, I think that Australian the Australian government seems to be quite tied still to this idea that gas is a cleaner option and that we have a lot of time to just slowly back away. Sure. Like, I think that that's one of the most effective PR lines that has um, come up in the energy sector um, in recent years, which is that, you know, gas is sort of a cleaner transition fuel. Um, and and now we see that the NT is being opened up to fracking. So yeah. I think that, you know, the idea that, that gas is um, a transition I think has been very um, effectively litigated by the energy industry but in reality, I, I don't think that there's any reason why you need that that transition. Um, why, or, or if we are adequately adequately investing in what would be the next step in that transition, it doesn't seem like the fully renewable economy is being built up fast enough that we transition from gas in any sort of you know timely fashion. Mm, exactly. Um, that reminded me of a point that was quite contentious during the week where Senator Sarah Henderson, brand new senator because she was the local member for Karangamite, um, got ousted at the last election and because Scott Morrison thought she was a talented person, kind of got his seal of endorsement. But she um, was very strongly against drilling, gas drilling um, and fracking and building dams and has been very, very vocal. Um, And what do you know? She turned around last week and changed her view and has decided that she wants the Victorian government to lift its ban on onshore conventional gas drilling. What on earth (laughs) when, you know, local members and politicians in general have such kind of strong convictions um, can suddenly turn around and just like flip on something that's a very, very contentious topic in any state? Mm. Yeah, she. I mean, she saw the light. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hallelujah. um, I I guess, I I don't know, I've always been pretty reticent to say that people can't change their mind because I think you know on the flip side of that we do want we do want politicians to be able to move forward on on certain issues uh but I guess the the unfortunate side of that is that 
people do often flip on things that you don't want them to flip on. Mm. Um, and well, it depends what process someone took yeah. to to change their mind. Was it rational thoughts and evidence, and you know, or was it something else? Yeah, I mean, I guess taking a strong stance on something or for, I mean it's the classic falling into line I think is mm. is what you've seen there and and when I, I mean yeah I, I don't want to speak too much to what her exact thought processes were because I don't know what they were but I think that once you are in government or when you are in a government where the leader holds quite a powerful position you know falling into line is something that that people tend to do in that situation. Um, it's funny I, that she used her maiden speech to do it in, though. Yeah, I, well, I mean, she she wanted to get clear it clear it right away. She yeah. wanted to clear that up just in case. But I do wonder. I mean, the other thing that came up during the IMF debate was um, that the the line was used that you know there are less people on New Start than ever before as a sign of economic strength, which I thought was um, was particularly interesting. Firstly, given how um, how tough it is to negotiate the New Start system mm. um, and the Centrelink system generally, and, to and even the idea. apply for it, let alone stay on it, yeah, which we've I guess we've spoken about. But mm. um, then that research that's come out, um, I believe it's in the Guardian that suggests that you know there may be less people on New Start, but the people who are on it are on it now for 155 weeks, which is up Much from longer. 113 weeks. Um, uh, in 2014. Yep. So what you're seeing now is that, you know, it is a really it's a payment for the long term unemployed, and I think you've had people at the margins, um, you know, find work, but there is a cohort of people there who, for whom it is incredibly difficult to to find work, particularly when you're on a, quite a low paid payment. Yeah. Um, and also, I'd be really curious to see in that research how many of those people were kicked off the disability support pension yes. or have applied for and been denied the disability support pension and are ending up on, on Newstart for really long periods of time because mm. they're just not getting enough support um, financially or in terms of, you know, supporting their home or physical support in order to find work or, you know, find some sort of un- um, employment that they that they can do given... Um, circumstances. Yeah, I saw a statistic um, from ACOS, which is the kind of peak body for community um, services, but particularly social services. And uh, they said that 25% of all people on Newstart have a illness or disability. So that would impact on their ability to get work. So that's like a quarter of all people currently on Newstart. Um, And it's interesting that I wonder how many um, people or how much the government does find out whether the people who are either kicked off New Start or leave New Start actually got full-time jobs because, as we know, you only have to reach a certain threshold of income to not be eligible for New Start, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're making a full-time wage. You might be casual or part-time. Yeah, well, I think that that's a growing concern about underemployment in Australia. And it's been a longer term issue, but I think Mm. particularly in the last few years, it's become quite, quite a large issue that there are a lot of people who would like to, you know, have more hours at work or are casually employed and want to be employed in a in a more permanent basis um, and they are just not able to to find that work or not able to negotiate with their employer in order to um, to secure a, a more um, stable you know employment agreement yeah some people needing more than one position or role um, let's go into the opposition uh, which is 
come up as well. It's certainly a subject of discussion and some people have um, thought, why are we talking about the opposition? Because we should be focusing on the government. They're the ones who are meant to be governing. And the government have been saying, oh, well, you know, we're still dealing with Labor's debt, um, which is really a bit of a cop-out given that they've been in government for such a long time. Um, What are the kind of criticisms and are they valid criticisms of the opposition at the moment, particularly the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, and the suggestion that they're not being a strong enough opposition to the things that Labor would traditionally oppose um, being put through the parliament and uh, the deputy leader Richard Miles saying that you know every vote that we have isn't going to be like a litmus test on you know whether we're a true opposition or not he was trying to leave it open to the potential or possibility that Labor might side with the coalition on some issues um, including uh, recently the free trade free trade agreements that um, the government has been trying to kind of lock down yeah Look, I think the interesting thing about this question, I guess it raises the bigger question of what is the role of opposition. And since Tony Abbott, um, we've had, I I would suggest more of historically an outlier um, of how oppositions have acted. So Tony Abbott was incredibly adversarial um, and sort of created that model of of block everything, vote everything down, uh, you know, amend every single bill into the dust. It was a very aggressive strategy and Mm. it was a strategy. Uh, And then with the shortened opposition, I I think it is interesting because, um, I mean, Labor sort of governed from opposition in the end and and that was also yes, a strategy to, to seem like a viable you know alternative government mm. um, so I think we've seen two very curious models for what an opposition might look like in in those two and now we have what I think seems relatively meek but perhaps is just a more normal kind of early days opposition trying to find its feet the Emerson um, uh, Weatherall Review, which is Labor's um, review into what went wrong in the election, it hasn't reported back yet. Although Craig Emerson was on my plane to Canberra on Friday. You're kidding. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Did you corner him? <laughs> no, I just made eye contact with him. As he <laughs> <laughs> it was a very curious plane. There was a lot of lot of uh, that's funny. A lot of uh, Canberra celebs on there. Yeah. But um, so that report hasn't come back, and I think. That Labor's plan is basically that report comes back, it reassesses what it is, comes up with a new platform and then tries to prosecute that platform. And I do think that that report really needs to be a moment for reset for Labor but also for Albanese who I think has done a really good job at not making this a really contentious, you know, infighting, um, uh, havoc uh, opposition transition between mm. Bill Shorten and himself. He's really been about, you know, this is amicable, there's no bl- bad blood here, we're all good. But in doing that, I don't think that he's really staked a claim for what he is as Labor leader, yes. um, what kind of party he wants to run and, and what kind of leader he wants to be in that role. Um, you know, sometimes when you play play very nice, it can get, it can get messy quickly. Um, but 
you know, if you looked at what happened last week with Joel Fitzgibbon coming out um, and making very strong statements about what Labor's climate policy should be, um, and, you know, he's done this since the election. Joel Fitzgibbon had a very bad election result. Yes. He is in a coal mining area in, in New South Wales and I think felt that Labor's strong climate policy going into the election affected his, his vote. Uh, but... Albanese was really effectively able to pull the party into line to really hold back Fitzgibbon and basically all across the right and the left mm. um, really shut down what Fitzgibbon was was trying to say and and was very strong on, you know, Labor's climate policy is this, we're not going to reduce our targets. Yeah. It was interesting that some of the ministers came out or shadow ministers and said um, Labor might change its policy or policy platform but we won't change our values. And so that was the kind of point of like, this is core to our values, so it's not going to change, mm-hmm. um, which is, I guess, at least s- small comfort for those who might vote Labor and hope that they don't become a s- kind of secondary coalition government. Um, but if you think about the alternative, you could kind of see how the government could use it against Labor if Labor suddenly takes these strong stances against Um, policies that the coalition is putting forward, well, the coalition might say, well, we won government, you didn't. And it was a fairly clear um, outcome from our perspective. Um, So, you know, get back in your box. Yeah, I think it's a really tricky one for Labor to navigate because you know, what is the government's mandate? They went into the election with such an open slate and now I think are retroactively trying to say, you know, these things are within our mandate. These were our policies that we didn't really put in a document or say. Yeah, so because they're not written down anywhere, Labor's kind of moving in the dark here to try and work out, you know, what is within the government's mandate. Um, Mm. But that being said, I think that it is really tricky for for Labor because – they do need to hold the line on some things. And I, and I do think that there are people within the party who will become frustrated if we get to the end of the year, which, you know, um, it's been reported various places in sort of blind items, but that Labor's plan is kind of hold hold on until the end of the year and then next year come in swinging. Mm. An entire year is a really long time in politics and there are a lot of bills that can pass in that time that can transform a country. Yep. You, you know, just look at the national security legislation, how it's affected journalism to go back. Mm-hmm. That a lot can pass when you're just kind of sitting there treading water. Yep. That's an excellent point. Um, and I couldn't agree more. Madison, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks it's been wonderful to chat with you. And uh, pick up the Saturday paper if you are interested in some long-form, thoughtful journalism. Yes. I, I mean, I, it's only early days, but I think it'll be a very good addition on Saturday. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I didn't realise how hard you worked, so I'm very impressed with the hours that an editor does because I'm like, yeah, it sounds hardcore. So congratulations to you. <laughs> Thank you. I haven't slept in several years, but, you know. <laughs> You're looking very fresh-faced for that. <laughs> I've been speaking with Madison Connaughton from the Saturday paper. She's the editor of that paper. And, um, yes, as you can tell, by the title you can pick it up on a Saturday this is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organisation in Melbourne Australia to find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows podcasts articles videos and interviews head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au
You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. I'm so pleased to have with me in the studio um, the Guardian foreign correspondent. He's now a roving correspondent uh, in Central and Eastern Europe and he has lived for probably, I think it's over a decade in Moscow in Russia, which is amazing. And um, his name is Sean Walker, and you may actually be familiar with his work from reading it on the Guardian's website. And Sean is in Melbourne to give a lecture at the University of Melbourne, which um, is obviously a fantastic institution who has some really great um, historians in Russian um, and other area, other parts of Europe, related parts of Europe. And so they have a great program there. And I think the lecture is actually part of launching the history curriculum um, and it's kind of being funded and supported by the Hansen um, bequest. So not bequest, the Hansen um, chair and funding. It's really great to see philanthropy supporting history in universities. And so um, it's great to see that Sean made the trip all the way to Australia, which seems like a a long while given where he's been from and Sean is also the author of The Long Hangover Putin's New Russia and The Ghosts of the Past which is published by Oxford University Press so I welcome now Sean who joins me in the studio hi hi thanks for having me thank you for coming in and um, I well first up the most obvious question in by what route did you get here <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I uh, I've had a slightly crazy uh, last week. Uh, so I was in New York uh, for a story, and then I was back in in Budapest, where I now live, uh, for a couple of days, uh, and then I came here uh, via Istanbul and Singapore. Um, so yeah, probably. Uh, need to plant a, a small rainforest to uh, make up for all the travel. But uh, I've never been to Australia before, so oh, really? I was uh, super excited to get the invite from University of Melbourne. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's really great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And it is a far way, given even when I went to um, England, it was like 24 hours on the most direct flight. So it just often feels like Australia is a bit of an effort for some to get here. But it's worthwhile, I think, (laughs) once you do, (laughs) once the jet lag wears off. Um, Sean, you really have quite an interesting and amazing career for someone who studied history in Russian uh, history and I think not just Russian history. Well, so I did, um, yeah, I studied history at undergraduate level, so mm. it kind of wasn't specialised, but yeah. I'd always been interested in Russia, so I sort of, you know, played the system so that kind of six out of my seven papers were about Soviet Union and, and 20th century Russia. and then <laughs> Informal specialisation. Yeah, yeah, and then I think there was one thing I had to do on sort of 12th century England, which I had no, you know, no interest in at all. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Jesus wasn't a huge fan of mine. But yeah, so I, I kind of came to journalism through being interested in Russia and when I I graduated I moved to Moscow and sort of one thing led to another. That's so interesting making that transition because I think that maybe nowadays people at university might say oh you know the world's your oyster if you do an arts degree or a history major you could do anything and I believe that because I also am a history major but a lot of people might not make the leap from history to journalist 
as a foreign correspondent. But in, when you look at your book and you see just how interconnected history and Soviet, um, the Soviet Union is to Russia's present day and the things that they grapple with now, as well as having grappled with in the last 20 to 30 years, it's quite obvious almost and it seems like it's such a fantastic synergy. What do you think about your kind of strong historical interest in that area of the world and and then how it's kind of translated into the career that you've got at the moment? Yeah, I mean, so I, th- I guess there are two separate things, right? There's like how how studying history helps just in general with with journalism, mm. uh, and then there's the sort of more Russia specific thing. So I mean, yeah, on on the first point, um, you know, I'm not sure how it is in Australia, but um, uh, in in Britain, most people there, there's not really like an undergraduate degree in journalism. You do, yeah. Unlike, for example, in Russia, where people were always very surprised if you told them, like, "Oh, I'm a journalist, but you know, I studied history. I didn't study like five years at the journalism faculty of mm. the university." There um, is, ju- it is a journalism degree in Australia. Okay, yeah, yeah. right. Um, and so, obviously, um, you know, obviously, there are times, especially when you're getting started, where you think, uh, you know, it would have been really useful to have some training in like libel law or, or, <laughs> or you know, interview technique or whatever. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, the, the um, a history degree is essentially teaching you how to think, how to mm. sort um, different types of evidence. Um, you know, when you when you look at a lot of these kind of programs to teach people literacy and, and understanding fake news and and looking at kind of how whether or not to trust things you see online, and you kind of think, oh, this is actually isn't that different to when you would be like you know, even in these papers that I didn't enjoy about 12th century England, sort yes. of looking at different sources and saying, well, okay, which one of these, how can we trust this? Who wrote it? What what kind of uh, ulterior motives might they have had? And so on mm-hmm. and so on. So I think, you know, on, the, on this basic level, there's a lot of skills that are useful for journalism and, and just kind of useful for everyday life. Um, and then more specifically on Russia and, and also um, in, you know, in this new... Um, adjacent region that I now work in of, of the sort of post-communist uh, European countries, you know, many of which are now in the EU, but still share that that common history. Um, and I think across that whole region, and, and particularly in Russia, um, this sense of um, of history being something that's still living and at the same time something that is really open to manipulation um, is really very strong. Um, and, you know, I think there are a number of reasons for that which we, we can get into. Um, but I th- the main one is, is clearly that just, you know, the 20th century um, in Europe and particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, um, <laughs> a lot of stuff happened. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff to work through. And of course, you're in a situation where for a number of years you had um, communist structures where the teaching of history and the studying of history was very prescribed. So suddenly you end up with all these new countries building new national narratives as independent states. And of course, you know, the easiest way to start building a national narrative is to look at the past and to try and pull out some kind of heroic national story. And that's kind of what we see happening in a lot of these places. Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of um, Timothy Snyder, who's another historian, fantastic historian. And he only recently gave a lecture to people 
think it was in Poland, about uh, World War Two and how the, that history still impacts and affects the way that Europe is constructing, and I'm talking about Western Europe, is constructing its identity and the way that it interacts with each other and views itself. And it was such a kind of almost obvious point, but it was really saliently put. And um, I think he was using it or utilising it in the sense of Brexit and this idea of needing to actually be, you know, united and what was the point of World War II and what did come out of that horrible moment. And yeah, that we're not all kind of constructed out of war necessarily, but it was just such an excellent pertinent speech. Mm. And it seemed like it was the... Thing that we everyone needed to talk about instead of what Boris Johnson was doing <laughs> at the time, like that probably would have been more constructive to the debate if the BBC had like broadcast his speech <laughs> instead of whatever was happening in UK Parliament. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know that your book has certainly focused on this idea of the pertinence of World War II to Russia and Russian identity post the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, so so my kind of the central argument in the book, I guess, was that that uh, Vladimir Putin in in Russia has used uh, the Soviet victory in the Second World War as, if you like, the kind of founding myth of of the modern Russia. The 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 almost like a you know it develops gradually over the twenty years he's in charge, but by now it's kind of become almost like a religion in Russia. So you know you have your saints, you have your um, sacred texts. You can't question any of it. Um, and you know on on the one hand um, that's very understandable because the, you know the Soviet. Uh, war losses were immense. There was enormous sacrifice. It it was uh, the most cataclysmic event of the 20th century. Uh, On the other hand, it comes alongside all kinds of problems to do with, you know, what happens after the war when Ukraine, Central Europe, to do with... uh, the, the fact that you know the the regime that wins the war is the Stalin regime. So, are you going to lionize this regime? What are you going to say about all the people who were killed in the years running up to the war? What are you going to say about the kind of tactics that seemed to um, have you know contempt in a lot of cases for human life? What are you going to say about the Nazi Soviet pact for the first two years of the war? Um, and so, and these become when you turn the war into. Um, such a big part of your modern day identity, these don't just become historical questions. I mean, in terms of the the Nazi Soviet pact, we've seen that in the last few weeks, as we got to the sort of the 80th anniversary of the start of the war, um, become a a really angry, aggressive spat um, in contemporary politics. Um, So... You know, I think it, it, it's 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 a really interesting and and kind of useful thing to look at how this memory is used. And I mean, just to come back to to Britain and Brexit. I mean, yeah. I, so I wrote this book about Russia, um, uh, but certainly in in a lot of the conversations about Brexit. Um, you know, I've, I go home and I wonder if, you know, there's another book to be written about about the war memory in Britain because, you know, we start hearing... And, and, and of course, it's very different. Um, it's a very different history to, to the, the Soviet history, but 
you know, it's still very strange to hear people kind of pulling out this um, these kind of tropes about, well, we, you know, my grandfather fought the Germans, so we're, I'm, I'm not going to let a German tell me what to do with Brexit. And what you hear from some of these Tory yes. MPs, you know, I was, in fact, when I came back to the UK to, to give a book lecture, um, and, you know, I had this lecture about how in Russia everybody is obsessed with the war and that people keep talking about the war. And I got off the train mm. at Oxford Station and the first, you know, I saw this massive advert saying Britain's greatest victories. And there was a big <laughs> sort of book in the in the bookshop on sale about the Second World War. And it's like, actually, you know, there is clearly um, there are some comparisons. And, and, and again, like in the Russian case, I mean, there are nobody's suggesting like we should forget all about the war or that this is not something to be proud of or that we shouldn't remember the people that fought but I think we have to think quite carefully about uh, how we use these memories mm. and you know just finally to go back to that the, 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 so I was in Poland on, on the 1st of September um, in Warsaw where they were having the kind of um, the ceremony uh, for the 80th uh, anniversary and you know, everybody was saying, you know, we must draw lessons from the Second World War, which is a, you know, fairly obvious and sensible thing to say. But of course, everybody there had a very different lesson. Yeah. Uh, so the Poles, the, the Polish lesson was never trust Russia. The Russian lesson was, you know, we defeated the Nazis and you should be grateful to us. Um, you know, God knows what Donald Trump or Mike Pence's <laughs> lesson was from huh. it. Um, but, you know, it's very easy to say these things like we should learn from history. Yeah. But then when you get to sort of, well, OK, well, what lessons should we learn? Then it seems that everybody has different lessons. Yes, that's so true. Um, one of the messages that Snyder repeated over and over was that you are more than your myths and your national myths. And that was quite powerful from a historical perspective and seems to be quite you know, the point of what you're saying as well is that we do kind of construct myths out of a fact or a, a basis, a historical basis, but they evolve into something that has a another life or another purpose and a different function and they can sometimes become quite distorted depending on the political environment that they find themselves in and the motivations of the time. I think a lot of people at the moment, or at least certainly myself but others I've heard of, would look at Russia as as it stands today under Vladimir Putin and not really understand the political kind of culture that exists in Russia and how it exists that way and why perhaps Russians might be um, positively disposed to Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and, I mean, the, the main imagery that we probably get is quite ridiculous. And I think, you know, lots of people would think of him riding, you know, bare-chested on horseback and, like, his... the Are kind you saying of, you don't like that? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, it definitely... It really didn't do anything for me. <laughs> but, you know, it, each to their own. It may have worked for some other people. Um, but, yeah, I think some people would go, well, what is the, like, allure? And obviously not everyone in Russia is going to be behind Vladimir Putin. But what, to your understanding, having lived there for so long and understanding the people and knowing what makes them tick, what do you think is the kind of allure that is Vladimir Putin and is there any kind of um, mythologising even around him as a figure? Wow. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, I'll try to give you the sort of, yeah, I'll try to give you the answer that doesn't take three hours. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it changes over time. So, you know, when, when Putin comes in, 
first of all in in you know pretty much exactly 20 years ago he's made prime minister and then he becomes president <clears throat> on the on the eve of the millennium and i mean at this point i think it's not difficult to see what people um like in Putin, you know, it's only 10 years, less than 10 years since the Soviet Union has collapsed. Uh, Russia's been through this really difficult decade mm-hmm. where, you know, it was economic disaster. The, the sort of excitement about democracy and changes was subsumed by the fact that, you know, it turned out that the Democrats seemed to be just as cynical as the communists, that a certain few people made all the money, everybody else was in poverty. And along comes this guy and says, you know, I will return your dignity. Um, we're going to make Russia great again, essentially. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's exactly what he says just before he comes to power. He says he wants to make Russia a first tier nation because for the first time in a couple of hundred years, it, it, it risks not becoming becoming a second or a third tier nation, as he puts it. So uh, I think this figure is quite attractive um, at, at that time. And, and, and he gets a lot of support. Uh, and then obviously over the years, um, Putin cements his power, the, all kinds of opposition to him are, are kind of closed down, he takes control of the media. Um, and so, you know, just fast forwarding to the situation you have today, uh, where indeed, you know, people often find it confusing, well, how can he have, after 20 years with, uh, you know, how can he still have these quite high approval ratings? Mm. And I think there are a few reasons. Um, you know, for a long time, he kind of had a deal with the Russian, an informal deal with the Russian people that you're going to get richer and things are going to get better. Uh, and, you know, you just don't uh, you know, leave the politics to me kind of thing. Uh, and, and because of the high oil prices, um, things did get better. And, you know, for, there's still a lot of poverty in Russia. But even in the smaller towns and cities, you go there and it's noticeably a more pleasant place to live than it was 10 years ago. Um, Obviously, with time, that becomes not enough. The economy slows down. Um, More and more people have started to travel due due to this um, kind of economic well-being. So more people see how things are in other places. Those people come back. They want changes. Um, And we have seen various waves of of protests, um, both... Uh, the sort of uh, non-political kind of angry economic protests and the sort of urban middle class who want things to be better. And, I mean, the way I always look at it is you look at a approval rating for Putin, which is may vary between 60 to 80%, and you think, wow, so 80% of Russians love Vladimir Putin after 20 years. And it's it's kind of a bit different to that. So, you know, you have you do have a small group of people who absolutely love Putin, think he's fantastic, would be ready to go out and, and demonstrate for him. And then you have a small group of people who despise Putin and are ready to go and take part in opposition protests and, if necessary, go to jail. And then you have this big mass of people in the middle, which is, you know, unscientifically, I'm going to say it's 70 or 80% of people mm. who are pretty disappointed in politics. They're pretty apolitical. If you say to them, do you support Putin? They'll say yes. So, you know, you tick them, put them in the, the box of Putin supporters. But if you dig down into that support a bit more, well, you know, why do you support Putin? Then the answer will inevitably be, oh, there's no one else. Or, oh, it would be worse. Or, oh, we remember the 90s when there was chaos. So kind of Putin's genius has been to create this situation where he is the only alternative 
uh, where you know their their messaging is it's either me or revolution, and you know how badly that ends. And you know, and to create a situation where they may well be right because they have got rid of as soon as anybody pops up with any kind of potential-looking support as an opposition leader, they get banned from the airwaves. They might get sent to prison. You know, maybe even worse. Um, and so you kind of create this situation where uh, it becomes if people say, well, look, okay, what's the point of demonstrating is not going to change anything. My life is reasonably okay. Um, so yeah, fine. Better to have Putin in place than, than not. And so, you know, that, that is slowly becoming more and more fragile. I mean, the summer we had quite mm-hmm. big protests in Moscow. Um, and at some point, you know, at some point that's not going to be enough. Uh, and we're going to get to a situation where either, uh, the Kremlin needs to offer real compromise, which I don't know if it's capable of doing anymore, or it needs to go down the route of full-blown repression because this sort of gentle repression and, and, and you know, occasionally putting someone in prison or mm. occasionally arresting someone, that's not going to be enough anymore. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, in terms of the Soviet era and what you're referring to as, I guess, the aftermath, which was not only economic shock, but also like an identity crisis, uh, which is not surprising given that it really, it was broken up into, was it 15 different countries after that point? And I mean, yeah, it seems like there's a fragmenting, at least geographically. How did um, people in Russia deal with that vacuum, the initial vacuum that kind of existed and this like really quick sweeping away of what was a Soviet identity. What was the like post-Soviet pre-Putin identity and how has that survived at all in current day? Any parts of it? Well, I think, you know, I think that that goes back to the point of, of why Putin was popular when he came along because he was kind of offering some kind of an identity. Whereas mm-hmm. for that first decade, um, you know, there there really wasn't a sense. Uh, 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 you know, I think there's there's even a, a quote in the book that that one of the uh, Yeltsin era spin doctors said to me, which is that you know we had to work out what Russia was because nobody mm-hmm. knew. Uh, you know, different people had different ideas. Was it supposed to be? Were they? Were we supposed to say, okay, you know, the Soviet period was an eighty-year mistake. We're going to go back to czarist Russia, and and was it was it was it meant to be? Okay, we're going to become an Orthodox Christian country, and we're going to base our our identity on religion. Yeah. Was it we're going to become you know the new America, and we're going to be just an ordinary European country, and one day we'll join the EU? Uh, was it you know we are this? We've always had this kind of unknowable Russian soul and we will be this big bridge between um, Europe and the West and Asia and the East. So different people had all these ideas about what the new Russia could be, um, but then would look out of their windows and see this rather kind of depressing reality where all the high talk about democracy and about progress and about living like the West turned out to sort of not be as easy as people thought. Um, You know, so you get the situation where Western democracy is um, sort of equated with essentially a few crooks running off with all all the money. Um, And then Putin comes along and says, okay, look, you know, I can give you back your dignity this is going to be you know russia is going to be again to to 
to paraphrase great again and and actually leaves the specifics of that quite vague so mm. you know it's not that he comes along and says we must all be orthodox christians or that he comes along and says um you know the the czar was brilliant or i want to resurrect the soviet union and he's actually very care you know there's this mistake that people think that putin wants to kind of is a big fan of the soviet union and he wants to recreate it He's very ambiguous because he knows that some Russians miss the Soviet Union and some Russians are delighted that it has gone. So instead, what he says is he kind of lets you draw your own picture of, of the country you want to live in. But he tells you that it will be great. It will be powerful. There will be dignity. It will be, as he calls it, a first tier nation. And he picks out the Second World War as the the kind of the one thing if you look at this difficult century of russian history where you know okay 1917 russian revolution for some russians who were sort of more pro-soviet that's still something to celebrate for other russians it's a tragedy the same with 1991 you know for some russians they would say well thank god we got rid of the soviet system even if it was difficult for other russians they would say what a disaster, life was ruined, and everything we sort of believed to be true fell apart. So you, you have all these difficult events that divide people, and then you have the war victory, which is difficult for its own reasons, but more than any other event um, kind of brings people together. And I think that's how almost at the beginning, organically, um, you know, it, it, I think initially it wasn't a cunning political ploy, but slowly, it, it, when when he saw how effective it was, it became that. Mm. Um, but you know, the, the, you you get this kind of idea of a new Russia that's built um, around respect, around authority, and and then at the centre of it, this almost kind of martyr-like story of you know we we had all these losses to have this great victory for the rest of the world and the rest of the world needs to respect us for that. Yeah. Yeah. And you write in your book that it is called, um, and the terminology is still used, which is it's um, in English, the Great Patriotic War, which is interesting. I mean, we call World War One the Great War. Right. Um, and just like World War Two, World War II. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, that kind of terminology is used. How do Russians remember World War Two or the Great Patriotic War? And what elements do they pick out as being emblematic or highlighting their greatness and I mean obviously the most obvious one is their contribution to winning the war and defeating Nazi Germany which is important but within that war are there kind of moments that uh, Russia might highlight or pick out as being important and are they kind of um, I guess from a historian perspective actually accurate? Hmm. Well, I mean, so on the one hand, uh, so on the one hand, quite a lot of the time when Russians get angry that in the West and particularly in America, people don't appreciate the Soviet war effort. Mm. I mean, they have a point, you know, yeah. the, all, most of the major battles were on the Eastern Front. And, you know, sometimes if you look at kind of Hollywood war movies or if you talk to um, kind of ordinary Americans about the war, you would get the impression that this was a sort of war won by the Americans with a little <laughs> bit of help from a few European allies. Um, and to be honest, the same the same in Britain to some yeah. extent. Um, so, you know, yes, when you look at the numbers, when you look at the way the war went, um, it's clear that, that the, the Eastern Front was huge and that the Soviet um, sacrifice and um, contribution to the war victory kind of dwarfs anyone else's. Um, 
at the same time, you know, this was a gruesome, horrific war with Stalin in charge with these two years at the beginning where the Soviet Union was allied to Nazi Germany with, uh, you know, all kinds of difficult elements. In the middle. I mean, you know, during the war, the Soviet Union deports two million of its own citizens in kind of train carriages to the Central Asian steppe, the, the entire Chechen nation and a bunch of other nations, which, of course, you know, leads to various things later on, particularly in the case of Chechnya. Mm. Um, so if you so if you kind of erase all of that memory and you don't talk about any of that stuff and you just talk about the glorious victory, that's one problem. And the second thing I would say is that it, it you know, when you, and, and this is not just actually to do with Russia, but this is to do with memory of the war across Europe, which is that, you know, so we, we've just had the 80th anniversary. And for me, that it seems that that's a kind of perfect amount of time for a kind of mythologizing uh, approach to history because 80 years means that you know everybody has a parent or maybe a grandparent who was involved in the war everybody can feel this you know it's not like talking about the Crimean war or something it's something that st- people still feel this connection to mm. but at the same time it's long enough ago that almost everybody who actually remembers what it was like um, has has died off with a few exceptions so what you've seen in Russia and I think probably in some other countries too is that over time this uh, you know when you read when you read stories about how victory day was marked in the 70s or 80s even though it was a sort of big pompous soviet holiday it was much more about spending time with veterans it was much more a sad day visiting gravestones thinking about it the, you know the veterans themselves often didn't want to talk about the awful things they'd seen during the war and then slowly over the years that kind of horror gets taken out of it and it morphs into more of a kind of we won the war, we can do it again. You know, you don't you don't recognize that we 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 kind of made this incredible achievement. And, it, you know, and, and if necessary, we'll do it again. And that's kind of what we see in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the war that starts in eastern Ukraine. Um, the symbol of that war in eastern Ukraine for on the Russian side was uh, these orange and black um ribbons which the Kremlin had used as Second World War memory so it's almost you know bringing that memory of the previous war into this new war mm-hmm. uh, and that to me was the sort of culmination of of this war rhetoric um, where suddenly we've got a new war on our hands and people are talking about it as if it's a continuation of the old war. Well that's really interesting from an outsider perspective because <laughs> I would never have linked those two well, given that you have just mentioned um, Eastern Ukraine, I think it came into prominence from our perspective when we saw um, the passenger plane get shot down over Ukraine and a lot of Australians were just kind of shocked at what had happened and obviously affected a number of people across the world. But that's just a small kind of moment in what has become, you know, a very controversial action on the part of Russia um, against the Ukraine. Where, why did Russia decide to, to take the action it did in the Ukraine and where are we at now? Hmm. Uh, another, another <laughs> nice, easy question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there are a lot, you know, when you look at uh, why Russia, um, you know, first of all, annexed Crimea and then got involved in, um, in, in the conflict in the East and uh, yeah, probably started it off as well. Um, 
you know, I think there are there are a bunch of of different complicated reasons, starting from, uh, you know, Putin's desire not to see Ukraine in NATO, the feeling that Crimea was strategically important, um, and and this kind of, you know, this decision that again about this this whole concept of a first tier nation of not being a country that gets pushed around. You know, Putin had said. Uh, he wasn't going to accept Ukraine signing this agreement and he showed that he meant it. Mm. Uh, so that's that's one part of it. Um, there, are some, there are plenty of other reasons. And then there's also, uh, I mean, there's also this historical clash, um, which clearly isn't the sort of main geopolitical reason, but it plays a huge role in the way people think about this, both in Russia and in Ukraine, which is sort of going through its own difficult sense of, of, of kind of what kind of country is it? What should it what should it be based on? Second World War again plays a big role, you know, in the Maidan revolution, which is what kind of spooked Putin and, and, and got him involved in the first place. You know, one of the main symbols that we saw was Stepan Bandera, who was the this kind of um, a, a Ukrainian nationalist leader in the Second World War who for part of the war was allied with the Nazis. Um, so you have this, I mean, it's way too complicated to get into now, <laughs> but you, you kind of have this historical overlay mm. where um, both sides are talking about history. And it's almost like, you know, the competing views of history in, in somewhere like Crimea were, were really very much on display. When you had the referendum in Crimea, there were these big signs everywhere that on one side, you had a sort of Ukrainian Crimea with a big swastika on it. And on the other side, you had a free uh, orange and black, we won the Second World War Crimea. Um, and so, you know, these, th- these, these were not things that were in the back of people's mind that they'd once studied at school. These were things that were really, you know, people almost talked about the Second World War and history more than they talked about any present day concerns. We don't want to be in a country where they don't respect the Second World War victory and so on. So all of this stuff um, comes together. Just in in terms of eastern Ukraine, shooting down the plane um, and so on. uh, I mean, then... That I think that is a result of sort of events just spiraling a mm. bit out of control. I mean, it was clear that Putin took the decision to annex Crimea. He wanted to do that. I think what we ended up with in eastern Ukraine was kind of one of those situations where they the Kremlin bit off a bit more than it could chew. Suddenly, they've got this territory with all these crazy rebels wandering around. They can't, you know, they've 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 already signed up to support it, but they can't fully invade because that's you know, that's really going to be the end of any cooperation with the West. So you get this weird situation where they're pretending they're not involved, but they're sending stuff across the border. Mm. Um, And that's unfortunately how you end up with kind of tragic stuff happening, like, um, you know, idiots trying to shoot, thinking they're shooting down a Ukrainian plane and shooting down a passenger jet. Yeah, yeah, because obviously... As you're saying, it wasn't necessarily formally a Russian army, you know, just kind of heading into the Ukraine. It's like, as you've said in the book, these separatists who have a past history with Soviet Russia and understanding um, and also, an, I guess, a tied identity to war in, in various forms. And, um, yeah, I found it really interesting the first Uh, or the introduction, I guess, where you were talking about this man called the Romanian because he sounds crazy in a really funny but great way, like, and quite extreme. Um, But he's, 
I mean, I can understand why someone who's had all those experiences gets to a point where that's how they see the world and how he is acting and how he's kind of taking up the mantle for Russia in the Ukraine. Like, what were your thoughts on meeting people like that in the Ukraine who are kind of part of that conflict? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, clearly these were people that were, um, you know, doing unpleasant and illegal things um, and, and causing all kinds of, of problems um, and heartache for people. But at the same uh, at the same time, and yes, there, there were elements of what they had been through in their lives and what they had seen that if you certainly wouldn't sympathize them necessarily mm. with them necessarily, but you'd understand where they came from. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of these men who were between 40 and 50, who'd been often young men when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, in the case of the, the, the guy you're mentioning and, and one or two others, <clears throat> they may have even fought for the Soviet army. Some of them had fought in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, as, as somebody said to me about uh, about this guy who was called the demon, who was one of the most terrifying of them all, um, you know, he he used to serve one this country and then the country that he served collapsed and not everybody can handle that psychologically um so you know yeah in 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 on the rebel side in that war you had this combination of 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 angry locals mm. of people like that who were russians or in some cases locals often russians who were sort of still getting over the collapse of the soviet union and decided they were going to come and fight for whatever some of them were fighting to you know because they were pro-soviet some of them were pro-czarist it was the most confusing mix of, of of different ideologies and then you did have the element of the the kind of russian army that was sent in mm. on on particular occasions um you know They've still denying it, but it was very, very clear that at times, um, the, you know, the regular Russian army was there, and I think it's it's pretty clear at this point that the um, Buk missile system that shot down the the Malaysian plane was was a regular Russian army um, missile system. So, yeah, it was it was a it was a kind of confused mess, and because they were denying it, because they couldn't say, okay, we're like with Crimea, basically, that yes, okay, we're doing this, this we're going in. Uh, you, the, the situation on the ground was was a real mess and 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 led to all these kind of tragedies happening. Mm. It, it's so complex, as you've already demonstrated, and we won't get into the nitty gritty of it. But I really appreciate you explaining it for us in what is yeah, a difficult situation. Sean, to finish this conversation, which has been absolutely fascinating from my perspective, so thank you for enlightening myself and I'm sure many others to what's going on over there. Um, but in terms of current day events and issues that I've that have made the mainstream news over here. Um, climate change is such a massive issue and we've seen Greta Thunberg be, you know, a big poster person for, for that movement and um, it has kind of picked up steam in a lot of countries around the world when we saw those global climate strikes. But I wonder in Russia um, and even Central and Eastern Europe whether climate change is felt as urgently and um, particularly I'm thinking of Russia 
and global warming and the the kind of changes that might be occurring over there, which would be potentially significant to um, the the lifestyle of Russians or even the ability to grow certain foods depending on the climate. Um, and also, of course, what has sparked my attention was the um, rapidly melting permafrost, which seems to be a rather scary prospect. Um, in your mind, when you've been living over there for such a long period, how has um, climate change featured or not um, over in Russia? Uh, I think it certainly uh, hasn't been um, as much of an issue as it is in in Western Europe or perhaps here in Australia. You know, I think it's, it's one of these things that perhaps... Um, you know, perhaps people start to think about more when uh, the kind of more everyday concerns about the economy and so on are, are less um, pressing. So I think in Russia, you've had this this kind of two parts to it. One is that um, uh, that yeah, people have felt they've they've just got other things to worry about, rightly or wrongly. And secondly, that the government has not made it. You know, we, it's not something that's featured on state TV, which is where most people get their news from. It's not really something that is kind of talked about. And if it is talked about, it's often in this kind of jokey way of like, oh, global warming, brilliant. You know, we'll be able to kind of go to the beach in Siberia or whatever. Um, I think when you talk to scientists about it, um, I guess there's probably for Russia um, there are some positives and some negatives with with global warming. So one you know one thing that they're talking about a lot is the um, increased ability to use the northern sea route, which is basically going along the Arctic coast of um, uh, north of Siberia. Um, so you know to get a ship from Europe to for example, Korea via that route um, is actually, you know, weeks quicker than than taking it all the way around Suez Canal mm. uh, and so on. And, and until recently, you've only been able to do that route with the nuclear powered icebreaker at particular times of year. And gradually it's becoming more and more open. So there's a sense, you know, that, that they feel perhaps at some point this could become this kind of major shipping route. On the other hand, you know, as you mentioned, permafrost, um, you know, because the, the Soviets had this habit of of building kind of major cities in places where, you know, if you look at the equivalent in, for example, Canada, you might have a mining town where, you know, people just fly in, do their work and fly out. Um, Soviets decided to build like proper cities, the places like Yakutsk, um, Murmansk, Magadan, that are really far north, that are built on permafrost. Um, and, you know, the, so basically they... The, they're built by putting these kind of long stilts into the ground. If the permafrost melts, the foundations kind of um, become unstable and essentially whole settlements can find that they're kind of falling apart, basically. So, you know, we're not talking about the whole of Russia, but there are a number of cities where certainly the, the talk of global warming is, is something that is not just a, a thing in the back of their minds, but something that could completely affect um, um, and, and the way of life, but I think it, it hasn't yet become something that kind of permeates um, people's consciousness. I think you know the the reaction to someone like uh, Greta Thunberg has been more likely to be sort of patronising laughter rather than oh gosh, this is a wake up call. Mm. Um, and and it doesn't yet feel like it's kind of penetrated into the kind of mainstream debate. Mm. That's really interesting to hear. Um, just finally, Sean. 
on a personal note, you're a foreign correspondent and you've been doing it for quite a while and probably more than a number of others. How? What kind of lifestyle is it to work as a journalist? Well, I mean, working as a journalist is quite demanding. It doesn't matter what kind of role you have. But as a foreign correspondent living in a whole range of areas in Europe, kind of what does that mean for you personally and how... I guess why have why have you been doing it for so long? Like, what keeps you going? <laughs> well, for me, I think it's changed a lot in the last couple of years because I was in Russia for such a long time, and and you know I speak Russian, and I was in, kind of felt very immersed in in Russia and the story, um, and now I've moved to a situation where. Um, you know, I'm based in Budapest, but I travel all the time to various different countries. Usually I don't speak the languages in the countries. I don't have that kind of deep cultural and historical background. Um, and so you end up, you know, perhaps on the one hand, you have a little bit more of a um, an outsider's perspective and you can see things more clearly that maybe when you're in the middle of something you don't quite notice Obviously, on the other hand, you just have less knowledge and, and, and less insight in a lot of ways. Um, I think in terms of the kind of the, the life of the foreign correspondent, I think it's changed a lot um, in the last maybe 20 years with partly due to what's happening with um, budgets and so on in media that, you know, when I started um, kind of 15 years ago, in Moscow, most of the correspondents for major newspapers would, you know, it would tend to be the sort of middle-aged white guy who gets sent out for, you know, like a diplomat, you do three years in Moscow, then you do three years in Washington, then you do three years in Delhi, um, and you almost kind of have this, you know, sort of 19th century anthropologist approach of, like, writing about the natives and, and bringing bringing this picture back to, to, to your readers at home. And I think partly because there is a demand for new voices and partly just because it's cheaper and, and, and newspapers don't have the budgets anymore. That's changed a lot now so that it, someone like me who had gone out to Russia um, and was interested in Russia and was sort of freelancing or working. My first job was for, for an NGO there. Um, there's more willingness to kind of hire someone like that. Um, and now if I look at the sort of people who are Moscow correspondents for um, the American or British papers, many of them are people with a Russia background. Some of them are even, you know, Russians whose parents emigrated and then they came back to Russia. Um, and you have much fewer um, people who are doing essentially what I'm now doing in Central Europe, where you're, you're a sort of career journalist and you arrive and you don't have that background in the region um, and, and you sort of uh, you start from scratch. So I think as I said, I think you know there are there are positives and negatives to both approaches, but I think overall it's definitely positive that you know people who uh, people are kind of more specialised in an area and and uh, perhaps more engaged, and that you know when you're a journalist based somewhere like Moscow, you're in in a way as your your whole life becomes part of your job. Which if you enjoy your job, that's great because you know every time you go to the theatre. You could, you could be seeing something that could turn into a story every time you go for dinner with your Russian friends, every time you walk out on the street and, and sort of just look at what's happening around you. Mm. Um, essentially, you sort of immerse yourself in this world and, and everything becomes kind of a potentially a story or something that you're interested in, um, which is both fantastic and really tiring, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must be so interesting, though, because every day would be different, wouldn't it? It is. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I'm in a way it's I mean, yeah, you get paid to 
talk to really interesting people about that. and you know whereas if you're if I was in London you would probably have a beat where you cover the courts or you cover culture or you cover a particular thing mm. um, as a foreign correspondent you do get this really quite broad range so you know you can be talking to an oligarch one day and a kind of minor the next day and a, a ballet director the next day um, and yeah just I mean absolute privilege really yeah, to, to talk is. to all those people yeah the access is amazing yeah and also obviously you're providing an important way in for people who aren't connected to that area of the world through the Guardian's website and the writing that you're doing. Hopefully. Yeah. That's the idea. Cross yeah. fingers. No, I'm yeah. sure you do. <laughs> um, so people can head along to your lecture tomorrow night. Uh, it starts at 6.45 and it's called The Importance of History, Reflections from a Foreign Correspondent. And I'm sure it will be fantastic. And as I said, the lecture is part of the launch of the new history curriculum at the university, which has been made possible by the Hanson Trust. Um, and also, obviously, you could check out Sean's book, which we've been referencing throughout this discussion, which is The Long Hangover. And uh, thank you so much, Sean, for coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. And it's just been absolutely wonderful. Thanks for having me. It's been great to have you. I've been speaking with Sean Walker, who is a Guardian correspondent for Central and Eastern Europe and uh, previously for Russia and was based in Moscow for over 10 years. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Jeffrey Tozer is the subject of the documentary The Eulogy, which we are going to discuss now with the director Janine Hosking. And Janine has been involved in a number of films and um, I think she was uh, a producer of a film that I spoke about a, a year ago or so, which was called Dying to Live as well. And Janine um, has also edited this film. She's um, a writer, credit writing credit on this film. Uh, she's also, of course, the director of it. So she um, has been with this film quite intimately and, and created it and followed the story. And it is quite an amazing story to look at the uh, life and untimely death of uh, Jeffrey Tozer, who was an Australian pianist and a true musician, um, and I'm really glad to welcome now on the phone Janine Hosking. Hi there, Janine. Hi, Amy. Hi, thanks so much for joining us, and congratulations on what is a really compelling and moving film. Oh, thank you, and, and thank you for um, having this opportunity to talk about uh, Jeffrey Toza's career. I really appreciate it. Oh, I feel like it's a privilege to get to talk about it. And um, watching the film and the archival interviews with Jeffrey at different points in his life, what struck me um, is just how um, sensitive and intelligent and um, moved moving and moved he is by music and um, just how much of a true artist he was and a number of people as you've um, shown in this film bandied about the the term prodigy because he really did show promise almost from birth Um, and I'm really I'd love to share that kind of wonder with the listeners um, now about what made Jeffrey Tozer in particular so special starting from a very early age. Yeah, it's a really, really wondrous story in terms of his 
natural um, gifts that he was born with. Um, in fact, we have a photograph that's um, in the film of him with his nappy on, um, with his mother putting his hands on the on the keyboard. Um, she was a gifted pianist as well, Veronica Toza, and so and she also taught music. So he was hearing um, classical music when he was in the cot, if you like, um, in her tummy too. So by the time um, she taught, she she tells a story about. Um, and she's written it down in a diary that um, he's showing immense talent, I think, as early as three. Um, and then he, um, under her guidance, is discovered later on and, and plays live, I think, at the age of eight in Melbourne. So um, clearly that talent was innate within him. Indeed, and uh, in the eulogy that Paul Keating, Australia's former Prime Minister, delivers, he does highlight that kind of early promise that Jeffrey showed um, and he said that uh, his earliest memory of the piano was when as a three-year-old he began to play Beethoven's Appassionata Sonata, music he had just heard his mother teaching to a pupil. I mean that's probably the textbook definition of a prodigy isn't it? I, I think so, and I, I think certainly the early years, and in fact, I guess right through his life until her death, um, she was an integral part of his career, um, and that you can't look at the genius of Jeffrey Toza without really looking at what his mother contributed, um, during, particularly during the child prodigy years. And as an adult, she was a supportive person, but she was a force of nature, and um, Richard Gill, the music educator that takes us through the story in the documentary, did at times question her methods, um, which we, we we go into in the in the film. So there was very much a hot housing environment, I think, of Geoffrey Tozer as a child at the piano. But you could also argue that he had that natural gift, and she, um, in her writings, talks about that he he was naturally drawn to the piano. Indeed. And his, um, I mean, he was growing up in a time where I guess parenting at that time was a little bit different and what was probably um, accepted or acceptable might have been a little bit different to the way that um, parents in Australia nowadays, some, maybe not all, uh, might approach the gifts of their children. Um, but it, it is quite a unique situation to find yourself in, to have a, a concert pianist for a mother who um, you know is teaching students in the Himalayas, and um, and then you're hearing these songs for the first time, and start composing your own songs as well at at a young age. Um, in terms of Jeffrey and his passion for the piano, it does seem like um, although he was supported and encouraged, and in some ways. Um, pushed by his mother or, or kind of encouraged, he certainly had this kind of connection, spiritual, <clears throat> excuse me, spiritual connection to, to music, which does seem to come through throughout his life. Um, and obviously you probably couldn't spend more than eight hours a day every day practicing if you didn't have a personal passion for the music as well. What do you think drove that passion and particularly his passion to bring to life some of the composers that we really haven't heard of or that hadn't at the time even been recorded in um, using modern recording techniques? I, I think um, you summed it up really well, but I, I think it's this innate thing within him. You can't separate Jeffrey Tozer from 
the music and the passion that was there for the music. Um, it's just a part of him. I don't think he ever questioned um, it. Uh, there is a, I think there's a, a section in his diary where he says um, he's, he's frightened of the piano. And in the teenage years, there was a lot of pressure on him, whether it was pressure he put on himself or from others' expectations that this genius that you see in childhood would would also go through smoothly into adulthood because sometimes it doesn't. Um, in Jeffrey's case, it did, but I think in the teenage years, he was starting to question what he was doing um, and second-guessing his own talent. So there was a very rough period there where I think he says, you know, I, I, hate, I hate the piano, but later on he picks it up again. Um, but I just think it was just a part of him, an absolute part of him. Um, and... Therefore, I, and he's always driven, I think, by exploring the complexities of, of classical music and introducing it to audiences that were um, perhaps not aware of classical music, hadn't heard much of it before. Um, there's some wonderful stories, actually, of Geoffrey going to regional areas throughout Australia and playing um, recitals, solo recitals, trying to spread the message of, of the music. But, yes, it seems like he was drawn to the more obscure pieces later on. Maybe that was because as a child he was playing all the main classical pieces that we know and love and to stretch himself he was exploring some more, even more complex pieces like the Metna, which we explore in the documentary. Indeed, it, um, listening to the Metna, I can understand why some people didn't attempt it because it seems like it would reveal your flaws if you couldn't, couldn't actually do it. Mm, yes, and... Back when um, Geoffrey Tozer recorded, recorded it with the London Philharmonic, from what we're told, he played it in real time from beginning to end. It's a half hour. I think it runs for 30 minutes, this concerto. So he played it in one go right wow. through. So nowadays, of course, you can, you know, you can edit and do it in, and record it in sections. Um, but he apparently did it in one go. Um, and apparently the orchestra was just a gobsmacked that he was able to do that. And he received sheet music um, from Russia and was sent out to Australia, I think, uh, maybe a month, about three weeks before he had to do the recording in London. It obviously was aware of it and had heard the Metna before, so I'm not saying he didn't wasn't aware of it, but to actually see it written down, the notes on the page, he saw that for the first time, I think, about three weeks out from recording it. Gosh, <laughs> it's really amazing. Everything that he's done is amazing. Um, it, at, in the film, you talk about these kind of major milestones in his childhood and then teenage years, and they would stun a lot of people that he achieved them at all, let alone at a young age, such mm. as um, at age eight in 1963, he played Bach's concerto in F minor with the Victorian Symphony Orchestra, which is now known as the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Mm. Um, in 1968, at age 13, he was the youngest recipient ever of the Winston Churchill Fellowship, um, which enabled him to head off to London. He then had got a second Winston Churchill Fellowship in his teenage mm. years. He made his debut at Royal Albert Hall with the BBC Symphony Orchestra in 1970 at age 15. I mean, these are kind of major things that that a, a pianist could only dream about um, in their adulthood, let alone their um, their teenage years. Yes, and um, you would have seen Amy the archival footage that's um, in the film where um, we actually what it, what a precious piece of music that's missing is when he does perform the Bach concerto um, 
in the Melbourne Town Hall and it's just missing from the ABC archive. Um, it was recorded um, and it's, it's just gone, so that, that's oh, a shame. No. But the, the audio recording is there. Um, but, yeah, it's an amazing set of achievements and yet so many few Australians know about him. Yeah, that's what's really shocking, isn't it? Um, and when we get to his time in Canberra as a music teacher in 1986, um, this is kind of a really important moment in his life for his meeting Paul Keating um, and Paul Keating meeting him because as one of his school friends, Jeffrey's school friends, says in your film, um, they said, I do believe that he gave Keating culture. And um, yes. Paul Keating might dispute that, but <laughs> I've, I was really impressed that there was a, there was an exchange between them. I, I think the thing with uh, Paul Keating at that time, when he meets or hears Jeffrey Tozer for the first time, he was the treasurer then, um, and he was going to a school concert um, where his son Patrick attended that school, and he hears this um, person playing the piano. He thinks, "My goodness, that's amazing talent." Why would they be a music teacher? At that point, Jeffrey Tozer was a part-time music teacher. He was playing um, concertos and recitals overseas, but he was I think he was earning about $9,000 a year. Um, so it was very much he couldn't concentrate full-time on his art because he obviously had to make a living, and that was as a school teacher. So it's at this point in time when Keating has quite a bit of power that he listens and hears Jeffrey Tozer, they had a conversation later. Um, Tozer explains the situation of where his career is at. Um, and that's when uh, Keating has this amazing inspirational idea to not only bring about what becomes known as the Keating Creative Fellowships, which were very much inspired by Jeffrey Tozer's circumstances, it was for midlife career artists. Um, that were having trouble uh, perfecting their art and, and, and sort of, you know, spending time on their art because they had to have jobs, um, other jobs that weren't their main stream in life, and that's thus the, the Creative Fellowships were born. But not only that, Keating also decided to step up and, um, I guess, in a way, manage, if you like, for a short period of time, if not officially a manager, he negotiated the deal with Chandos Records in London for, for Jeffrey Tozer um, to, to record with Chandos, and that breathed new life into Jeffrey's career. Indeed. He actually travelled all the way to Colchester, which anyone who mm. knows England, Colchester is not that famous for much, um, and it's a little bit far out. And, uh, mm. yeah, it was interesting to see just how much Paul Keating believed in the talent of Jeffrey Tozer and was, um, yeah, motivated to kind of correct a wrong, I think, which is that he just wasn't... He was being underutilised. Mm. And I think... Um I think there was that thing about I'm, I'm going to get him a, a good deal and I want the world to know about this. But he really, mm. really believed um, in his talent, which, um, you know, if you've got someone in your life that believes in you, um, that must have been incredible for Jeffrey because it enabled him then to produce, I think there was over 32 recordings that he does with Chandos that at the time were the, were the top um, classical music recording label. Um, an incredible achievement and to be able to record with the London Philharmonic, for example, um, was that would not have happened without um, Keating's support. 
Indeed. And I'm interested in his relationship with orchestras. Um, in the film, you talk about the fact that um, Tozer was playing with Australia's major orchestras, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and the Sydney Symphony Orchestra in 1982. Um, and you show some kind of concert programs that had him involved. And then, of course, when he was rec- making those recordings, um, he also was recording with one of the top orchestras in the world, the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, he then, even in the 1990s, travelled to China and played with top orchestras over in China. Um, and that beautiful uh, Yellow River Symphony is amazing um, mm-hmm. to watch and see. I am interested in this idea of him um, as a pianist connecting with an orchestra, which you also highlight through his interviews, and the fact that he was known uh, for a certain level of improvisation in, in elements of his playing, um, and that, that that is not an uncommon thing, um, I guess, as a soloist. Many soloists kind of add their own flourish to certain pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting to me and what seems like the crux of the film is that the reason why a number of managing directors and artistic directors of the Australian symphony orchestras, the reason why they said they didn't utilise Jeffrey enough or as much as others would have hoped is because they didn't think he could play nice I guess with an orchestra or go along with whatever was the the agreed plan in a rehearsal and it seems to me like that at least could not necessarily be the whole picture given that he played with so many world-renowned orchestras and that no doubt there are a number of musical soloists who also kind of had a similar approach to Jeffrey what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, th- I think it's quite complex. Um, I mean, I never actually saw him or heard him play live, I, you know. And so it depends who you talk to, you know, who you want to believe. Certainly it was Keating's um, view and expressed it in the eulogy, which the, the film um, is inspired by Keating's eulogy in which he lays the blame to the orchestras for the downfall of Toza's career, that Toza wasn't getting um, work here in Australia. Um, some people aligned that with the fact that as soon as Keating is out of power, um, the fellowship stopped and the arts community turned their back on um, Jeffrey Tozer. So that's one view. The other view, which you um, ex- expressed then, is that some people claim that he improvised too much. Others said that great artists like Mozart would <laughs> would improvise. Mm. Um, it's, it's the hallmark of a genius. Um, and certainly, yes, he was playing... Um, I think that that footage is amazing of the Yellow River Concerto, which is playing in China, which was televised to 80 million people. Um, so Richard Gill really sort of drills down on this sort of thing to go, well, was Jeffrey Tozer questions, was he um, the victim of a tall poppy syndrome? You know, was he, I think he says to the conservatorium students, um, you know, was, was Jeffrey just too good, you know, for the orchestra? So these very provocative statements um, are there. I don't actually have the definitive answer for you, um, but I, I think what we did try to do was, um, as well as seeing Keating's perspective, was to actually look at, well, well, what were they saying? What was the reason that we'd have such a talented person um, simply go? And then I think as the story progresses along, um, it, the answers become more and more complex. Indeed. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned Mozart. Pretty much every composer, I think, was of a kind of similar level in their kind of genius and ability to change things and and kind of 
um, I guess, evolve a piece as yeah. they played. Uh, I'm really interested in this, um, the eulogy, which of course is the, the inspiration, as you say, for the film. And at the time that Paul Keating delivered this eulogy, um, it was published in newspapers around Australia. So it certainly did really make the news at the time. Um, and I'm not really s- surprised given that every time Paul Keating says something, um, you know, pointed or, or passionate that people do take notice of what he says. Um, but what was interesting to me in, in Paul Keating's book afterwards was that it said that um, Jeffrey Tozer directed his executor that the only person who he wanted to give the eulogy at his funeral was Paul Keating. So I was really interested in that element that, that Jeffrey Tozer really um, – thought that Paul Keating, among others, was the person to understand and deliver the message of his life. Um, and, and I do want to just read out that really important quote so people can understand the kind of passion that um, was behind this piece and why it probably got people either angry or um, impassioned themselves. Um, so this is, one, this is one of the quotes from Paul Keating. He said... Um, But for all of that, he could not make the cut with the latter-day Melbourne and Sydney Symphony Orchestras. Their indifference and contempt towards him left towards him left him to moulder away largely playing to himself in a rented suburban Melbourne house the people who chose repertoire for those two orchestras and who had charge in the selection of artists during this period should hang their heads in shame at their neglect of him if anyone needs a case example of the bitchiness and preference within the Australian arts here you have it well that's kind of not surprisingly why people got a little bit up and about um, <laughs> and you talked to a number of those people and also one of the journalists who covered the back and forth um, of that time. Um, in terms of your recollection of that moment and the eulogy and its kind of moment in the press and the news, what mm. captured you when you heard it and or read it and, and kind of heard that story around the eulogy and why Keating was delivering it? Well, um, I was actually given a copy of the eulogy to read by a friend who said, don't you think there's more to this story? Um, And I read Paul Keating's eulogy. I actually was unaware of it when it came out, to my shame. Um, So I read it and I thought, well, wow, this is searing. I mean, uh, you've read one of the more provocative grabs, but I think Mm. the whole eulogy is is a call to arms really um within the arts community so um and it's very sad and it's searing and it's dramatic and you're thinking my goodness is this what happened um and but the way forward to find out actually what happened um beyond a eulogy at a memorial was to go to the tozer estate where we were very lucky um to discover um diaries and letters that had been written by Geoffrey Tozer and his mother, Veronica. They're both very prolific in writing down events daily, some mundane things and other big moments. And so we were able to get a sense of Tozer's career and what was going on into the background of his life through his own words. And I think that was really very reassuring um, to us that, um, you know, lots of people have different opinions and... um, I, I, in particular, and the, the other producers, um, Katie Grusev and Trish Lake, we, we wanted to make sure that the truth 
was out there. And the only way perhaps you can get the truth, even though it's subjective from Jeffrey's point of view as well, was to keep going back to the archive um, to back up some of the claims that were being made. And I, I think then you're finding revelations that actually the music establishment was saying later in his career, certainly not earlier on, that Tozer was having problems with alcohol. Yes, and it's certainly backed up in the in the diary, um, and so it was never our intention to go. Oh, okay, this is the eulogy. Um, let's make a hagiography of Jeffrey. I really felt, as much as celebrating his talent, we also had to look at what was the reason that he's not alive today. What was the reason that he couldn't flourish in this country? Um, and it's very complex. Yeah, and I think a lot of people. Um, are interested in this idea of uh, the creative genius who um, struggles because they aren't like everyone else necessarily. Mm -hmm. They are in some ways, but really they're not in in the most important way, which is whatever it is that they're so good at Um, Mm -hmm. and that they can often struggle. And if they don't have that support, and as you show in the film, his mother passed away and then within another year his manager passed away, Um, This is something which many people would struggle with and then this is a person who left school at 13 um, and yet is highly articulate and intelligent um, and, yeah, and and perhaps... um, found it harder to relate to to people if their main kind of vocation was playing the piano all day, day, every day. Um, So I'm interested in how someone um, could have... Then, then those issues and it could be expressed through or, or alcohol could be used as a coping mechanism. Um, in terms of the film and you're looking at his letters and when alcohol became an issue, was that towards the last or the latter part of his life? I think you're seeing actually earlier on in you know later teenage years is is experimenting with alcohol as everybody does. I don't think it was impacting so much on his um performances um i think he had this is from hearing from his friends and colleagues a great capacity for alcohol really um he could drink a lot and still go out and perform really remarkably well but i think you might see the downward spiral occur after the creative fellowships are over um he completes a few more recordings for chandos as part of the original um recording deal that Keating um, got for him and uh, uh, negotiated for him. And when that's over, you're sort of seeing then his sort of reliance back on Australia again. He's no longer going overseas to record um, with these great orchestras. He's in Australia relying on the local scene and it all starts to fall apart. And that's when I think the drinking um, tends to overcome him in the later stages. Um, so also I think we have to remember that his, his, his gift, he still needs to practice a lot, a lot, all the time, eight hours. It's very isolating sort of career to have um, for a soloist when you go in and play with a, an orchestra. The orchestra members all know each other. Sometimes you're the gun for hire that comes in and out. Uh, I remember spending some time... Um, backstage with Jason Gillum, another amazing Australian pianist, um, when he was performing Beethoven with the SSO. Uh, And he was alone backstage after it had finished because they were going on to perform um, something else without him. And I thought, my goodness, this is so... such a lonely profession in a way Um, so you you have all those elements and then you've got this 
man who um, started life as a gifted child who emotionally I think was not very mature when it came to um, relationships. So he had friends, but I'm talking about love relationships. Those sort of things come to him later in life. So um, this is where you you bring in the issues of the hot housing and um, being singularly focused on one thing. You know, how does that make a well-rounded individual so that becomes even more complex so it was a really heavy job trying to work out those threads for the film to be fair to Jeffrey and also to be fair to those that were being blamed for the demise of his career. Yeah and it's interesting that um, he became really quite well known in China and he went to China so many times um, Mm -hmm. and even in the early 2000s and um, that wonderful scene as I said earlier where he's playing he was the first Western artist to perform the Yellow River Concerto in China which was at the invitation of the Chinese Ministry of Culture um, Mm. which is really impressive and that was in May 2001 um, and then he was giving recitals in New York um, and still coming back and forth to China and then finally um, also another wonderful performance in January 2003 to celebrate Miriam Hyde's 90th birthday Um, he took part in that ABC broadcast and I, I listened to that one of the pieces he played and how he explained the pieces and his connection to it and and to Miriam and it was just so beautiful um, to hear that um, and have access still to those live recordings of his his playing and so you not only do you have those Chandos recordings which are you know pretty perfect um, in the sound quality and then you've got these kind of really beautiful live emotive performances that he um, gave later in life. We should note um, when he passed away so people can understand the context I believe it was 2009? Yes that's right yeah. And yeah. so for people who aren't aware of Jeffrey Tozer, how, what, were, what was life like for his final um, couple of years? Um, it was tough. Um, he didn't have much money. But interestingly, um, when later after his died, he was living by himself in a rented house in Melbourne um, and his friends went through the house and it was just a mess, a dreadful situation he wasn't looking after himself um you know they they discover unopened checks in the in the in envelopes um this is when all the diaries and, and the other letters were discovered as well um so i guess he'd sort of given up in a way um and so the you know they go in there and and the music uh, the piano um lid had been closed and there were books on top of it so he was he'd stopped playing the piano um there was some. Um, there was electricity, but there was no heating um, in cold Melbourne winters. So um, he'd really sort of, he was depressed and, and very, very ill. Um, so it was a, a very sad ending for Geoffrey. He died alone. Um, and yet, you know, it wasn't hard for us to find people that absolutely adored him. Um, he would play um, at people's houses. Rich people would pay him to come and play on their pianos at their dinner parties. And so he's very well known throughout Melbourne and yet his life was a very sad ending. Indeed yeah it's um, great that we do have those recordings that were supported mm-hmm. from the the Keating fellowships because they say it seems like it's a way to keep having um, Jeffrey's talent with us forever um, in, a, in a very imperfect circumstance of losing him at age 54. Exactly and I think I was just I was going to mention before that um, 
the Chandos recordings, um, the Metna Concerto Number no. One, which was the first one he recorded after Keating negotiated the deal, um, was nominated for a Grammy. It's a, mm. that's a little known fact, an amazing uh, achievement in the year that Yo Yo Ma won. Um, so he was he was right up there and internationally recognised. I, I think he won Record of the Year, and there was some enormous international accolades. That when Richard Gill, um, the same music educator, he was not aware of these achievements that Jeffrey had um, had got. And when he started listening to the music, he was absolutely blown away. So um, it was like this, it was a very quiet career in, in many ways. Yeah. Um, Janine, it's been fantastic to speak with you. And I think this film will speak for itself um, when people go and see it. So I hope they do. And it is out. It's been out for about a week officially in Melbourne. Um, and it's currently on at cinemas like Cinema Nova, um, the Rivoli in Camberwell, the Sun Theatre in Yarraville. So there are many options for people yeah. to be able to access this film. Uh, of course, it was at the Melbourne International Film Festival also a year ago, but it's great to see it getting this wider release through Madman Films as well. Um, so thank you so much, Janine and congratulations and I think it's such a, an enormous contribution that you've made to um, make Jeffrey and his life and his work really accessible to us. Oh, thanks, Amy, and I really hope that people will, will get out and see it because, um, you know, films don't last very long in the cinema and, and we've designed it to be heard and seen in the cinema, so I really appreciate your support. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.